Before I start preaching, I, I want to mention to you that we have one of our members, Hurl Calm, who is turning 100 years old this week. Uh, Hurl, Hurl is not with us today, and actually, because of his health, he's not been able to be with us in church much over the last year or two. But uh, he lives at Presbyterian Village. It would be a good thing if you would get a card and just send him a card. Uh, he can't come to us anymore because of his, his uh, health, but we can go to him through a written card, a note, just saying happy birthday uh, on this special milestone in his life. So I would encourage you to do that, Presbyterian Village. You can look that address up in the phone book and uh, just write it in care of Hurl Calm, K-A-L-M, and uh, they'll get it to him. We have defined grace as the undeserved, unmerited favor of God. In other words, there's nothing that we can do to earn God's kindness. There's no amount of good deeds. There's no level of righteousness that if we attain to that level, God will feel obligated to give to us His favor. Now, that doesn't mean that we just give up trying, uh, because just the opposite is what Jesus teaches. He wants us to aim for perfection. Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, Jesus said, Be ye therefore perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's what we should be striving for. But realistically, we know that's, that's impossible for us to, to hit that goal by ourselves. The only thing that we are perfect at is not being perfect. We are sinners. We are unrighteous. Romans 3.10 says there's not even one of us who is good. If we got what we really deserved, it would not be the favor of God at all. Rather, it would be the wrath of God. It would be hell. But thankfully, God is gracious. He longs to lavish His grace upon us, and He will do that as we put our trust in His Son, Jesus. And that is the good news of the gospel. I've been studying with someone just recently who has had no idea of the good news of the gospel. It is like she has been living in the dark all of her life. And recently, when I shared with her the good news of Jesus, you could see it taking root in her heart, and she was coming alive. It was like a light bulb was being turned on, and the darkness was being driven away. And, and we've got to understand, there are people like that all around us, people who do not know the good news of Jesus. It's important that we share with those people that good news. There is a misunderstanding that I want to address today. A misunderstanding that, in, that some feel like in the New Testament, God is a God of grace, but in the Old Testament, He is a God of wrath. As though we are dealing with two completely different gods. In, in the Old Testament, He is vengeful. He is almost anxious to pour forth His wrath upon people. That's how this view holds God. And they'll, they'll point to such evidences as the flood. 
And they'll point to Sodom and Gomorrah. And they'll point to the judgment upon Korah and his family in Numbers chapter 16. You may remember that story. That Korah and his family were continually complaining against God and and against Moses. And there came a point where the ground just opened up and swallowed Korah and his family alive. That's the ruthless God of the Old Testament, this view says. But then they say, you know, that same God is different. He's different in the New Testament. In the New Testament, He is a God of grace. And and He's forgiving and He's kind and, and He's loving. He's different than the God of the Old Testament. I don't believe that about God. I think that view is an incorrect view of God. According to Malachi chapter 3 verse 6, God is unchangeable. He is the same God in the Old Testament as what He is in the New Testament. He is perfect in His grace and He is perfect in His wrath. And you see that to be true in both Testaments. And you, if you took the time to study this thoroughly, you would find that to be true. That there are plenty of pieces of evidence that in the Old Testament, not only is he a God of, of wrath, but he is also a God of love and a God of grace. And you see that to be true as Jonah preached to the Ninevites and, and God's grace was upon those people as they repented of their sins. And how many times was he patient and and forgiving towards the people of Israel? They complained and groaned and moaned against God. And yet he was patient towards them and loving towards them. He was gracious towards Naaman the leper. He healed him of his disease. Maybe you remember the widow from Zarephath. The prophet Elijah was staying with her and, and her son died. And through God's grace, he gave that son back to her Alive. It's very clear in the pages of the Old Testament that God is both gracious and He is just. He is perfect in His grace and He is perfect in His wrath. And the same thing is true in the New Testament. His love is well documented as He gave His only begotten Son, Jesus, to die on the cross for our sins. And you see His grace over and over again in the ministry of Jesus as He he raised up the lame to walk. He gave sight to the blind. He raised up Lazarus to live again. On and on we could go, the different miracles showing the love of God towards mankind. But you know, also, the same God in the New Testament, you see Him to be a God of wrath, a God of justice. And if you don't think so, just ask Ananias and Sapphira. They will tell you all about that. But I will say this. There are not as many times in the New Testament as what we see in the, in the Old Testament, this pouring out of God's wrath upon mankind. And I think I know why. It's because of what Jesus did on the cross. The cross and the payment of sin by Jesus is holding back the wrath of God. It's almost as though it's serving as a dam holding back the wrath of God. His wrath is still there. But it's being held back. It's being stored up for the end of time. And you see this in Scripture in more than one place. Romans chapter 5, verses 8 and 9 says, 
God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10 say the same thing. For they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you, how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. This is Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Understand this. There is a day coming in which God's wrath will be unleashed against all of man's unrighteousness. But in the meantime, God is longing for more people to be saved. He is being patient. He is is being long-suffering. He is waiting. He is hoping that one more person will come to to repentance. He has more grace than what we can even begin to, to imagine. He is a God of grace. And we have been emphasizing that in this series of messages, talking about grace and particularly how how we are highlighting God's grace in the lives of several Bible characters. And we have looked at several Old Testament characters over these weeks past. We've seen how God's grace shows up in the life of Abraham. We've seen how it shows up in the life of Joseph and Moses. Last week we talked about Joshua, the grace of God in his life. And within the story of Joshua, we saw the story of Rahab, God's grace towards her. Today, we are looking at one more Old Testament character whose life was filled up with the unmerited favor of God, and that is the person of David. When it comes to to God's grace... And the life of David, I think we could say it this way, that God's grace was overwhelming. It was more than abundant in the life of David. First of all, you'll see God's grace in that he chose David to be the king over Israel. And David was quite an unlikely candidate. If you have been reading from Andy Stanley's book on the subject of grace, he has a chapter there on David, and this is what he writes. I'll quote to you. David's story is a story of grace from start to finish. He says, why David? And he's, and he's re- making reference here to, the, to David being king. He says, why David? What had he done to deserve this honor? Nothing, not a thing. And and apparently his family agreed. They didn't even invite him to his own coronation. Besides, a new king should be the son of an old king. David wasn't even from the correct family, yet God picked him. He picked him in spite of his family and in spite of his birth order. Unquote. And maybe you remember the story. As Samuel came to the house of Jesse, he had a mission from God, and that mission was that he was to anoint one of Jesse's sons to be the next king over Israel. And it was as though Samuel is sitting on a bench, and each one of Jesse's sons are being paraded past him. The oldest son came first, and Samuel was quite impressed. He thought to himself, surely this is the next king. Eliab was his name. He was tall. 
He was broad-shouldered and he was strong. He was handsome. And from a human standpoint, he was striking. And Samuel was so impressed with him. And he's thinking in his mind, surely this is the one. But God said to Samuel, no. No, this is not the man that I have chosen. And he went on to say, do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature. Because I have rejected him. For God sees, not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And six more sons are paraded past Samuel. And each one of them, from a human standpoint, seem to be quite impressive. And yet each one of them God rejects. God says, no, that is not the one. And Samuel turns to Jesse and says, do you have any more sons? And Jesse says, well, yes, I, I do have one more son. The youngest, he's out tending the sheep. <laughs> you see, in Jesse's mind, David wasn't even a possibility. He was the youngest. He was small in stature. He was inexperienced. He was a shepherd of the sheep. He wasn't king material. But Samuel insisted, go get him. They went to get him. David came, and as he paraded past Samuel, God's voice in Samuel's mind says, this is the one. Arise and anoint him. Because of God's grace, he chooses ordinary people to do extraordinary jobs. And this has been God's way all along. In this case, he is called a shepherd boy to become the next king over his people Israel. And we would see it later as God calls a fig farmer named Amos to become one of his great prophets. And we would see it yet again as God called the cupbearer to the king whose name was Nehemiah to be the man to lead his people out of captivity and, and to take them back into the city of Jerusalem and to rebuild the walls. And you see the same truth over in the New Testament as Jesus comes, the Messiah, and God calls four fishermen and a tax collector to become his right-hand men. And he called a woman who had been filled with demons, Mary Magdalene. She had been freed from those demons. And she was the one to be the first to go and tell the resurrection story. You see, God loves to take people whom the world gives no consideration to whatsoever, and He will fill those people up with Himself, and He will do extraordinary things through them. Well, time went by, and do you know where David ended up after he was anointed as king? He ended up back in the field attending his father's sheep. But God was preparing him for something big and someone big. What do boys do when they're in a field? And they're surrounded by rocks. And they get bored. 
They do what I did as a young kid. If I'm out on a trail somewhere and a lot of rocks laying around, I'd pick up a rock and I'd find me a target and I would see if I could hit that target with the rock. And, and I'm, just, I'm just imagining uh, David picking up ten rocks and saying, how, uh, finding a target, and how many times out of ten can I hit that target with this rock? Except David wasn't throwing rocks. David was slinging rocks with his slingshot. And over time, he got so good with that slingshot that he could put a rock anywhere he wanted it. And so it shouldn't be too surprising to us that he put that rock right in the middle of the forehead of that giant. And when he did, the giant came tumbling down. Last week we talked about Joshua and how the walls of Jericho came tumbling down. And the story is true with David. He put that rock right in the middle of that giant's forehead and the giant came tumbling down. God loves to use ordinary people and do extraordinary things with them. I wonder what he might do with you and with me. If we would just surrender to Him and become available for His service. We tend to say things like this, God can't use me. I don't have any talents. I'm a nobody. But God specializes in taking nobodies like David and making somebody out of them. All it takes is a complete surrender on your part and my part and a willingness to say, yes, Lord, I will do what you have called me to do. And just as God's grace showed up in David's life, choosing him, to be the next king over Israel. So too, God's grace will show up in your life and my life as He chooses us to do His will on this earth. He'll help us. He'll help us get the job done. Let me get to you a second point about God's grace in David's life. He forgave him of his sin. And I'm, I'm speaking particularly of his sin against Bathsheba and her husband Uriah. And if you're not familiar with that story, you can read it in 2 Samuel chapter 11. I want to ask you this question. Why was David not out to the battle with his troops? The very first verse in chapter 11 of 2 Samuel says that he was not out to battle with his troops. Instead, he had stayed behind in Jerusalem. And that was very unlike David. You read his story. He was a leader in battle. He was quite a warrior and people liked to follow him. But this time he'd stayed behind. He'd sent his troops out and he'd stayed behind in the city. It gives me some insight as to the danger that we put ourselves in when we step away from the spiritual battle that we are all in. You do know that we are all in a spiritual battle. The battle is raging. And as long as we are fighting the battle and we are engaged with our enemy, there is no time for fussing and fighting with the guy who is in the foxhole next to us. 
No, he's my buddy. He's got my back and I've got his back. But, the, uh, but I'm told this is true. Those fellows who, who step away from the front lines of the battle and they go to the back, those are the fellows who, whom you'll find complaining about the food. And they're complaining that the coffee is cold and, and they're fighting with each other. They have time to fight with each other when they're not engaged in the front line battle. They find all kinds of things to complain about when they have removed themselves from the front line to the back. And I think that's true in the church too. The, those who are engaged with the enemy every day in the power of Jesus and they are witnessing and they are serving and they are loving and they're growing and, and they're extending grace to their neighbor and they're loving their neighbor and they're praying and, and they're reading the word. These are the people who don't have time for nitpicking and, and fighting with each other. But those who have removed themselves from the front line of the battle and they've gone to the back, those are the ones that you'll find nitpicking. Those are the ones that you'll find complaining and, and they'll be fighting with their brother and sister because they have, they have time on their hands. And they find all kinds of things that don't suit their fancy. Sometimes it's the preacher. Sometimes it's the church. Sometimes it's this or sometimes it's that. Sometimes it's the song service or sometimes it's, it's this. Whatever. They find all kinds of things that, that they just complain about. And I'm wondering if those aren't the people who haven't, who haven't stayed engaged in, in fighting the enemy in the front lines. And so my challenge to you is to learn from David, don't remove yourself from the front lines of the enemy. Stay engaged, stay focused on who your real enemy is. Paul said it this way, our, our battle is not against flesh and blood. Our battle is not against each other. Our battle is against Satan. Well, David wasn't used to having so much time on his hands. He, he's, he's remained behind in the city. He's bored. And so what's he do? He goes up on to the rooftop in the evening time just to get a view, to get some fresh air. And, and lo and behold, he sees a beautiful young woman bathing. Now, if he had turned away from that, it would have been all right. But he didn't turn away from that. He looked again. And he kept on looking. And then he plotted about how he might have her. He inquired to his servant as to who this woman was. And if you read Andy Stanley's book, he pointed out something to me that I thought was very interesting. I never had really picked up on this until I read this, that his servant says to David, as the question has been asked, who is this young woman? The servant says to David, she is the wife of your faithful servant, Uriah. <laughs> you know, Uriah, <laughs> your friend, 
your loyal servant? Uriah, you remember? You're, he's out there on the field fighting for you, David. This is his wife. In other words, the servant was doing his best to help David out. He is saying, David, leave her alone. She's taken. She's taken by your friend, your friend Uriah. But David didn't leave her alone. There was an affair that night. And a pregnancy was announced a few weeks later. And then there was an effort to cover it all up on David's part. And when that didn't work, there was a murder that took place. Uriah was dead. David sinned against Uriah. He sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against his own family and his people. He sinned against himself. And above all, he sinned against God. And time went by and David, I think, felt like he was going to get away with his sin. But we need to be reminded, God doesn't let us get away with our sin. A prophet named Nathan was sent to David. And, and Nathan came with a story, and everybody likes a story. And so Nathan says, I, I want to tell you a story. And it gets David's attention. He's engaged to what Nathan is saying. He says, let me tell you, king, about two men. One was rich and one was poor. The rich man had all kinds of flocks and herds. But the poor man had one little ewe lamb. And he and his kids spoiled that little ewe lamb. They played with it all of the time. I mean, from its infancy. They, they brought it into the house and they bottle fed it. And they loved that lamb. They, they cradled the lamb in their arms and they petted the lamb. And, and at nighttime, uh, the lamb went to bed with the kids. And the next morning, the, the father, he'd go in and he'd check on the kids. And, and lo and behold, the kids would have their head on the, on the little lamb as a pillow. They named the lamb. He was a part of the family. This little lamb was precious to this poor man and his family. And that's really all they had. Well, there was a stranger who came through the land, and he was hungry. And he stopped at the rich man's house. A meal needed to be shared. And so, rather than the rich man taking from his own flocks of many, he was a selfish man. He went over, and he snuck over to the poor man's house, and he grabbed that little ewe lamb from the arms of his kids, and he took that lamb and slaughtered that lamb, and that's what he fed the stranger for a meal. And at this point in the story, David rose up with anger, and he said, tell me who this man is. This man deserves to die for what he has done. 
And Nathan pointed his finger at the king. And he said, David, you are the man. For God gave to you everything that you would ever need. He even gave to you the throne over his people Israel. He gave to you everything that you could be content with all of that, but you chose not to be content. You went and you stole the little you lamb. You stole Uriah's wife. And then you went so far as to kill your neighbor Uriah. And it was like a sword into the heart of David. And I'm just, I'm just picturing David as, as this all plays out. And Nathan has put the finger on him. And he has, it, it's like a ton of bricks. The truth has come down upon him. And I'm just envisioning David just buckling to his knees. And he's saying, oh, I have sinned. Against God. And all of a sudden, the king is broken. He is broken over his sin. I want to talk to you for a moment about repentance. And I have good news for you today. That God in His grace extends forgiveness to the repentant sinner. Do you understand what repentance is? It's to know that you have sinned against God. And that you are sorry for your sins. And you confess those sins to Him. And you ask Him to forgive you. It means that you are turning away from sin. And you are turning back towards God. To repent means if, if you are walking in this direction in, towards sin, towards yourself, and the pleasures of, of yourself, to repent means to stop. And you turn away from that. And you turn back towards God. You are giving your heart back in complete surrender to Him. Acts 3.19 says, Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the, from the Lord. Do you want times of refreshing? Do, do you need that burden of sin lifted here a few weeks ago? We talked about the baggage that we carry and the heaviness that sin brings into our life. God's saying, give your sin to me. Let me take the baggage and lift it away from you. Let me free you from your sin. Do we understand that if we don't do that, that our sin is leading us nowhere but hell? Jesus said, if you don't repent, you will perish. Can't get any clearer than that. If you don't repent, if you don't change and give Him the, the controls of your life, you will go to hell. 
But the good news is Jesus accepts the repentant sinner. His arms are open to us. He will forgive us. He will give to us a brand new start. Second Corinthians chapter 5 verse 17 says, Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. If, if we repent, He will wash us clean. He will erase the sin from our record. He will lift the burden that has come from our sin. And we would be an absolute fool if we say no to repentance. And so God, in His grace towards David, number one, has chosen him to be the king over Israel. He didn't deserve that honor or that position. And God in His grace, number two, forgave David of his sin. And I'll give you a third point as we talk about God's grace towards David. And that is this. He sustained David through all of his hardships. I really don't have time to tell you details about all of David's hardships that followed after this sin with Bathsheba and Uriah. But let me encourage you, if you are not familiar with this story, read it. In those pages that follow chapter 11 of 2 Samuel. Read David's story. Let me give you just a snippet of what happened and the hardships that he encountered after his sin with Bathsheba and Uriah. Number one, hardship number one, heartache number one, the little baby born to him and Bathsheba died. Heartbreak for David. Heartbreak number two, his own son Amnon raped his own sister David's daughter, Tamar. Now put yourself in David's shoes and to, to think about that happening in your family, that your son would rape your daughter, his sister, and how that would break your heart. It broke David's heart. That's heartbreak number two. Heartbreak number three is connected with that. Another son, Absalom, he knows what his brother Amnon has done to his sister Tamar. And he's looking at his father and thinking, do something, do something. And he doesn't see David reacting in the way that he thought he should react. And so Absalom takes the matter into his own hands and he kills his brother Amnon. And so now, not only do you have a rape taking place and a loss of an infant, but you've got a murder in your own household, one son murdering another son. But it doesn't stop there. Because Absalom is enraged with his father. And so he begins a conspiracy. He wants to overthrow his father he wants to take over the throne. And you know what? He gets the job done. He throws his father off of the throne 
In fact, David has to run for his life out of the city of Jerusalem and all over the countryside. He's running with his son Absalom chasing after him, trying to kill him. Heartbreak number four. But it doesn't stop there. Because David still, even in all of this, he loves his son Absalom. And David's loyal army has gone with him out of the city. And he is, his captain, Joab, says, let me, let me have a chance at Absalom. I'll take care of him for you. And David, in his love for his son Absalom, says very clearly to Joab, you leave your hands off of Absalom. You do not kill him. But he did. Joab killed him. And so we have another son dead that David has to bury. I can't imagine all of that heartache. And I don't think many of you can imagine it either. To have all of that happen in your family and in your life. And yet the grace of God sustained him through it all. And you read about that truth in the book of Psalms over and over again of how God sustained David amidst all the heartache. Let me read to you one of those writings, chapter 73 Verses 21 and following. Just feel. Feel what David is writing here. He says, When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand. With your counsel you will guide me and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. You see, through it all, God never let go of David. And David ever let go of God. And the same can be true for you. You know, each and every one of us here have burdens that we carry. And some of you, you have, you're going through trials that nobody else really even knows about. You're carrying a load that nobody else understands. But I'll tell you what, God understands. God knows about your load. I may not know about your load, but God knows about it. He knows every detail 
of the load that you're carrying. And he wants to lift the load and carry the bulk of that weight. He wants to carry you. He wants to carry your load. And he will if you let him. Let's pray together. I thank you, God, for your grace. That you sustain us. That you forgive us. And that you choose us to be your servant. And you empower us to get the job done. We don't deserve that kind of grace. But we thank you for it. In Jesus' name.